I think the events of 2011 in Yemen have, were extremely important. They basically came out of many, many years of frustration and rising anger at the incredible level of social differentiation that was taking place in Yemen with a very small group who were benefiting from the neoliberal state and externally supported um, investments and, politi and e political economic approaches, and the fact that the vast majority of the population were getting increasingly impoverished and increasingly frustrated, unemployed, and had faced the kind of problems that exist in many places. Um, the anger rose, the frustration rose, and the country was really on the verge of exploding uh, a long time before 2011. The main thing that those of us who were watching it were wondering is what would be the trigger. And the trigger turned out to be the apparent success of similar activities and events in the countries, in the other countries, primarily, of course, in Tunisia and Egypt. So the movement initially was really largely a youth movement. But then again, in Yemen, 70% of the population are young. So that really does include the majority of people. And the other characteristic that, of that movement in, is really that it was national. It wasn't just in the big cities. And indeed, even in the big cities, a lot of the population are of rural origin and were students or others who were working in the cities. And generally, it really was a wide popular movement, which started off as a mix of an independent movement and a movement connected with some of the political parties. And over the period of the year, it remained extremely active, again, throughout the country. And uh, there was a big change in March 2011, when after a particularly murderous event on one of the Friday demonstrations, um, some of the formal official opposition and indeed some of the groups that were clear previously associated with the president turned against him. And so there was a split in the military security forces, which meant that from May 11 onwards, there were actually internal military clashes and there was a, set, a new situation within the movement where the independent people were given, were lost their influence to some extent at the expense of the military opposition and the official political opposition. So that colored the movement quite significantly. And again, the difficulties and the clashes between the pro and anti salah forces over the following months led to the international community more or less imposing the departure of Saleh by the end of the year. Moving ahead in time then, Helen, how did the war start to the extent the conflict has received international media attention? And really it hasn't, which we'll come to in a moment. It's been painted as a proxy conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, with the United States hovering in the background. What were the endogenous causes of the war? Yes, yeah, so after the departure of Saleh in early 2012, there was a transitional regime which had been supported by the international community and particularly by the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf states. And it was officially known as the Gulf Cooperation Council Agreement. 
And this transition was supposed to bring a form, a, a greater level of democratic representation and more representation of the ordinary people in the in the political regime and to try and to bring about a new constitution and a new approach. Um, in itself, this has a number of issues, but I won't go into them. But basically, this transition over the following two or th- two years failed to do what it was supposed to do. And while it was going on, the Houthi movement, who had been at war against Saleh between 2004 and 2010, gained strength considerably. And indeed, by the end of that period, had become allied with Saleh against the transitional uh, regime. So the outcome was that by the end of 2014, um, they had basically taken over the, the capital city, had seriously increased their military competence, and were in a position to basically get rid of their transitional government. And again here, the trigger was that one of the aspects of the transition was a new governing system for Yemen, and there had been a lot of talk of a federation and basically both the Houthis and Saleh rejected that federal proposal. And when the new draft constitution was brought for discussion, this was the trigger for them to finally um, basically get rid of the transitional regime. So you then had basically a civil war that started between, on the one hand, the Saleh and the Houthi forces and the transitional regime, which included some of the former opposition as well as some of the former regime and some of the new forces that had emerged after 2011. And militarily, there was no doubt that the strength lay with the Saleh Houthi group. The result was basically that the official president of the of the transitional regime was called on the Saudi and the Emirates and others to help bring him back to power after he had had to leave somehow. What is there in the role of Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states in the war? Riyadh claims for itself the mantle of championing the fight against terrorism in the Arabian Peninsula and throughout the region. But what are its real motivations, do you think, in Yemen? I think the main issue in Yemen is that Saudi Arabia does want to have a regime in Yemen that it can control. Uh, but on the other hand, you need to notice that you know there was a very fundamental change in Saudi in January 2015 when uh, King Abdullah died and was replaced by his brother Salman. And Salman instantly appointed his son, Mohammed bin Salman, whom I'm sure your listeners have heard of, as Minister of Defense. And I think the active and open role that Saudi Arabia took at that time would not have taken place under the previous regime. It was really primarily a motivation for Mohammed bin Salman to demonstrate his macho capacity and the fact that the Saudis were quite capable of taking action themselves, that they weren't subservient to U.S. policies, remembering at that time that Obama had signed the Iran agreement and that the Saudis were extremely unhappy about this. And as we now know, I even continue to be extremely unhappy about this. So I think although the original 
involvement was officially to bring back into power a regime which was reasonably agreeable and willing to cooperate and take, uh, let's put it politely, advice from Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. In over the period, the situation has changed considerably. I mean, the Saudi hostility against Iran was always there. But what has happened in the last three and a half years is that the Saudi Emirati and others um, coalition have completely failed to to defeat this small group of ill-armed, ill-equipped, and ill supposedly ill-trained Houthi forces. And, you know, to explain that, given the level of their equipment and competence and training, etc., etc., they've been getting from everywhere, saying that Iran is the main enemy does somehow make this failure a little bit more palatable. So, of course, as you have certainly mentioned at the moment, the Hodeida offensive is really the first major offensive and change in, in, polit- in military situation that has taken place for well over 18 months. In early April, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres described the situation in Yemen as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. The majority of the population relies on aid and they're not getting anywhere near enough of it. There's a severe cholera epidemic and according to the UN Secretary General, every 10 minutes a child under five dies of preventable causes. Who or what is responsible for this catastrophe and why is it receiving such precious little attention in the West? I think I'll try and answer the first part of your question separately. I think the first point to notice is that Yemen is and was, even prior to all this, the poorest country in the region and in the Arab world. Uh, The humanitarian crisis is very, very much worse as a result of the war but Yemen already had very, very grave uh, humanitarian problems prior to the war and very high levels of poverty. So the, you know, the levels of poverty and hunger and disease are to a large extent due to um, pre-existing factors. What has happened in the war is that they've made things much worse. Yemen was for the last 30 years or so, dependent on imports of basic food commodities for 90% of its needs in staples of grains, rice, uh, wheat, and other basics. So it's not as if, you know, it was self-sufficient before the war. And so people are dependent on imports, not exclusively on humanitarian assistance. And what has happened is that the problems of the blockade of Hodeida port and the blockade of the western ports is that they have limited and reduced humanitarian assistance considerably. But most importantly, they've reduced and almost stopped commercial imports. So in association with the financial problems related to the Central Bank of Yemen and other complex issues, you have a situation where the majority of the imported food is no longer arriving. And that is what is causing the major uh, food crisis for the population. When it comes to water, you know, and basically when you're talking about cholera, you're talking about water. Because cholera is transmitted through, you know, unhygienic water or polluted water. So when you're talking about water, you always had a major, major problem with water 
and the lack of sanitation facilities, the lack of sewerage facilities in the towns or completely inadequate sewerage facilities, the fact that most water that's extracted from wells in the cities and also to some extent in the rural areas has been polluted. So you have, you know, that has been at the at the core of the cholera epidemic, in addition, of course, to the collapse of the medical structures, which themselves have been seriously affected by the issue of imports and the blockade. So I think when you're looking at the, that level of catastrophe, which it, it now is a catastrophe, you know, these are factors that need to be looked at, in addition to a whole host of issues connected with the war economy and connected with the difficulties of the financial difficulties of people accessing food because, you know, we're talking about a population whose income has collapsed. You had about 1.2 million government staff who have not been paid, some of them now, for getting on for two years. So people don't have the financial means to buy the food that is available. So I think that is, you know, these are really very much the points that are, uh, that need to be looked at and clearly in greater depth than I can do at this moment. Finally, Helen Lackner, what would you say to our listeners who want to know more about the desperate situation in Yemen and what they might do to help or at least better inform themselves of what's happening there? Well, I think in terms of informing themselves, you know, there is access to some information. If you look for it, of course, you can always find massive amounts of stuff. Various channels and media are publicizing the situation, though probably less than uh, than most people would like. I think in terms of helping, really the closest people can do is really give some money to their favorite charity or organization that's operating in Yemen. Personally, I tend to support Médecins Sans Frontières and UNICEF, but I, I, you know, that's a personal choice. I think you know, any, any good, reliable, serious NGO or international organization operating in assistance for humanitarian aspects in Yemen should, you know, is deserving of support. And politically, of course, any pressure that can be put and I think in the case of Australia, you also have the issue that there are Australians involved with the Emirati forces. So any pressure that can be put politically to increase support at the UN and elsewhere for an end to this disaster uh, can be helpful.